0: There's something about that song we just sang. A little town of Bethlehem that's always stood out to me as a Christmas carol. It's been one of my favorite of mine among the many Christmas hymns out there. Because so I think it holds intention tension an important duality, if I can call it that, of Christmas. Despair and hope. A little town of bethlehem was written by an american episcopal minister by the name of phillips brooks in the 19th century after the civil war in 1865 he traveled to the holy land and toured bethlehem seeing the believed sight of the manger scene at christ's birth this trip stuck with the pastor when he returned to his church in philadelphia and a few years later in 1868 For the children's Christmas program, Phillips wrote out a text that we know as that hymn today. But it still needed a tune, and Phillips turned to his trusted organist, Louis Redner, and told him to compose a tune to go along with the text that he had written. Phillips even promised that the name of the tune would be named after Redner if it ended up being any good. Little did both men realize that their hymn would be a beloved Christmas carol, even still today. But curiously, Brooks' original, he originally wrote five stanzas for A Little Town of Bethlehem. However, today, if you were to hear it played or in a recording, you'd likely only hear three or four of those stanzas, omitting usually the fourth stanza. You never hear this stanza, but allow me to read you the words. Where children pure and happy pray to the blessed child, Where misery cries out to thee, son of the mother mild. Where charity stands watching and faith holds wide the door. The dark night wakes, the glory breaks, and Christmas comes once more. I love that last line. The dark night wakes, the glory breaks, and Christmas comes once more. I think that pairs really well with Phillips' other lyric at the opening stanza, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Phillips, I believe, rightly recognized that Christmas is inherently a mixture of despair and hope. Christmas has been and still is intrinsically a combination of both pain and joy darkness and light. Christmas is this way because it was prophesied in this context. In Micah 5, the city of Jerusalem is bracing for yet another attack. The prophet speaks of soldiers being called to arms, an enemy encircling them, and the humiliation of their political leader, the people were on the brink of a catastrophe unfolding before their very eyes trapped and surrounded by death itself the events mentioned in Micah 5 sound a bit like 2nd Kings 25 through 20, 24 to 25 if you were to flip over in your bibles to the last two chapters of 2nd Kings you'll find that it's a helpful companion to our text from Micah and Second Kings 24 through 25, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has appeared on the scene. And at first, he forces the king of, Jeru- of, Jer- of Judah, along with its king Jehoiakim, to be his vessel state, meaning its residents can remain in the land for the time being, except they're under the thumb of the Babylonians. This likely manifested itself in heavy taxation or tribute being paid to Babylon. And understandably, King Jehoiakim doesn't like this arrangement, and he attempts a rebellion against his Babylonian overlords. However, his coup fails. Predictably, this makes King Nebuchadnezzar pretty upset, and he personally accompanies his armies to the capital city of Jerusalem and lays siege to it with the intent of showing that such uprisings will not be tolerated under his watch. But it's during this initial siege, the new king, King Jehoiakim, as King Jehoiakim had died at this point. King Jehoiakim, along with his family, advisors, and attendants, all surrendered to King Nebuchadnezzar before any blood could be spilled, attempting to appease him. But King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't satisfied. He pillaged the temple and palace treasuries, and he took into bondage all of Jerusalem's best warriors and craftsmen, metalsmiths, and other skilled individuals, leaving only the poorest of people to populate the city. And in fact, it's during this first exile that a certain now famous four Hebrew young men named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were deported to Babylon but after exiling the royal family and many others Nebuchadnezzar puts king Jehoiachin's uncle Zedekiah on the throne as a puppet king presumably giving him more direct control of the nation however king Jehoiakim however like king Jehoiakim before him Zedekiah rebelled against his puppet master it's then that the Babylonians once again led personally by Nebuchadnezzar return with vengeance to Jerusalem once and for all And unlike the last time where the city was spared, this time around the armies of Babylon were going to destroy the city. They were going to demolish the walls and burn down the temple and palace. They captured King Zedekiah, and for his treachery, he suffered the worst humiliation imaginable as punished. He witnessed the execution of his sons. He was blinded, and he was hauled off to Babylon in captivity alongside the rest of the population of Judah living in Jerusalem. And it's during this second siege that many scholars believe is the backdrop for Micah's preaching and prophesy. It's at this lowest moment that God reveals a part of his plan. When the people of God were on the verge of defeat, God, through the prophet Micah, chimes in an important word of hope. A Savior is coming. Did you catch the butt? I'm not talking, I'm talking about the conjunction, not the lower posterior of human anatomy. The conjunction, but. There's a lot of important buts in the Bible, and this is one of them. After all that has been mentioned, the crisis of war, the downfall of their nation, the humiliation of their king, but God has a plan. God is going to do something about this. This is the part of Micah's prophecy that gets lost if we just read or hear it being quoted in the New Testament. The stories you are familiar with concerning this prophecy about a little town called Bethlehem are more fixated on the where instead of the why. In the Gospel of Matthew, the first mention of Bethlehem comes in the second chapter after Christ has been born. We're told that a certain number of wise men or magi have traveled from the east looking for the one born king of the Jews. A celestial sign has indicated to them that he has been born and they have pilgrimed to worship and honor him. And understandably, they travel to where kings usually are located. They go to Jerusalem, except they find a ruler named Herod who was completely unaware of this event. Herod taken aback and the bible says he along with everyone in jerusalem is frightened along with him understandably he along with the religious elites of the time they deduce that this one that the magi speak of this king of the jews is the prophesied messiah it's then that immediately herod employs all of the chief priests and scribes to research their scriptures for clues on where The Christ child is born. And that's where they go to Micah 5. And they read this familiar passage we do every year. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers. For from you shall come a ruler who is the shepherd of my people Israel. We've heard this probably every year. But the wise men, Herod, the chief priests, and the scribes are fixated on the where, all for different reasons the wise men out of reverence, Herod and the religious leaders out of fear, but I want to challenge us just for a few moments to read Micah's prophecy the way Micah reads it before jumping hastily to how Matthew reads it. Bethlehem is important. We'll get there in just a second. There's significance to Bethlehem in the New Testament, but the but comes before Bethlehem and Micah. And it should be for us as well. Don't get fixated on the where just yet. Just remember the why. May we never forget, church, that when the story of God and his people seemed to be on the brink of coming to a permanent end, Christmas was predicted. When it could not have been worse for the people of God, when the chips were down, God reveals Christmas. Remember what is happening in Micah's day. The Babylonians are storming the gates. War is breaking out in the backyards of those living in Jerusalem. The judge of Israel, either that's King Jehoiachin who was deported or King Zedekiah who was humiliated and tortured, has been struck on the cheek, Micah says. The entire population of Judah is on the cusp of being forced from their homes and exiled to start brand new lives in a foreign country. Things aren't looking good. It's chaos and Judah, and it's then that God chimes in a word of hope that he has not forgotten them. He has not abandoned them. God is in control. God is moving and working. And while on the outset, things look dire and bleak, God is not finished with their story yet. God has plans. The darkness and chaos of this world may prevail in the short term, but not in the long term under God's watch. Can I tell you the good news this morning that when it seems like all hope is lost, Christmas butts in. God keeps taking our present desperate circumstances, all the wrongs that lay siege to our life security, all the humiliations to which our sins subject us, and instead of abandoning us to our follies and destruction, he turns the whole future scenario of our lives upside down. Don't forget the buts in God's story like the one here at Christmas. Don't forget the divine buts in your story. Between my third and fourth grade years, a significant change occurred in my life. My family moved, and this meant that I needed to start at a new school and be forced to make new friends among strangers. But things didn't go well for me at this new school. I was quickly the victim of harassment and bullying. I can still visualize in my mind the face and the eyes of the young boy that specifically antagonized me. Needless to say, I did not like my time there. And even as a kid, I questioned God as to why he wanted to move my family, if it meant that I had to endure suffering at school. But God had a plan. My parents searched for a different school for me to attend and ended up being a local Christian K through 12th grade school that was a good fit for my brother and I. And in retrospect, I have come to accept that God allowed me to experience being bullied in fourth grade because it led to my parents finding this new Christian school where I eventually graduated. If not, I believe that my story may have been completely different. In fact, I may never have been called to ministry in the first place. Because you see, it was at this new Christian school that I heard about a mystery road trip experienced heading out to Indiana. And for those that know my story, I joined this trip and was on this trip that I felt led to preach for my very first time, and it was descending from that platform that I was in place to hear God's call on my life for ministry. God strategically had me attend that Christian high school with the purpose of putting me on that trip, among other things, for me to be in place to hear the call for my life. Often the penmanship of God, if I can call it that, is mysterious and can only be detected in hindsight, but in my experience, God may pencil in some hard seasons with a joyful finale not far off in the horizon. There are some of you this morning that have entered this space under siege, the disorientation from a recent illness, injury, or medical diagnosis. The heartache of grief and mourning from a recent death or loss weigh heavily on your heart. Regret and guilt from a recent lost battle with sin or temptation dominates your thought life. Stress from work, school, family life, or somewhere else populates your thoughts and minds. Anxiety from the holiday season itself is beginning to mount as Christmas parties and dinners and activities have either happened or are happening soon. I'm not sure how you entered this space, but can I tell you something before you exit? Don't forget the divine butts in your story. Be on the lookout for those, church. I don't know what God has in store for you, but I believe in a good God. I don't know how long you have to wait for the butt in your story, but I know God has not deserted you. God is at work in your life, crafting a story that defies all comprehension if told. Perhaps that starts with hope. The hope for Judah is still the same hope available to us. We share with the people of Judah this promise from God. The figure who is to be the ruler in Israel is the same for Judah and us. Everything Micah said pointed to Judah receiving a new David, one who would fulfill a long-standing promise God had made with King David centuries earlier, and today we believe this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Centuries before Micah's day, when King David reigned over a united Israel, he found favor with God. And God made a covenant or a promise with David that someone will always sit on his throne. It'll never be vacant. And in 2 Samuel 7, God told David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This promise was being put to the test in Micah's day. The last king of Judah had been forcefully removed. All the current generation of Israelites have witnessed is the downfall and humiliation of the royal line of David. And by all accounts, it seemed like it was over. But God keeps his promises. And this is where Bethlehem comes into play. I told you Bethlehem was important. This is when it's important. As a town, Bethlehem had a reputation in history, but this little town was most remembered for being the birthplace of the folk hero and legend, King David. Probably this facet of Bethlehem's story doesn't need to be repeated, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of a quick refresher. There was a certain man named Jesse. Jesse and he lived in Bethlehem with his eight sons, and out of these eight potential candidates to be king, God selected the unlikeliest youngster, David. David's notoriety among the people of Israel brought status to Bethlehem. However, it still remained a podunk little village dwarfed by the metropolis that was Jerusalem. Nevertheless, God remembers where the royal line of David all started. If the promise to David was going to be fulfilled, a new David had to be born here. And Micah goes on to say that this new David will imitate the old one. He will employ tactics like a shepherd, just like David. Something that the people in Micah's day desperately needed. You may know that before David lived in the palace, he lived in the field with sheep. He was a shepherd of his father Jesse's flocks. And this new David will shepherd God's people just like the old one did. But what sets this new David apart is that he is from old, from ancient days, Micah says. This figure is not a time traveler. He's not traveling from the past to the present. Rather, he is a figure that existed in the far-off past because he pre-existed time. He existed before time was a thing. And the only person who existed before time and outside of time is God. This figure will somehow be divine or actually divine, depending on who you ask. In fact, Micah says that this figure will be empowered by God. This individual will do things in the strength of the Lord. He will do everything in accordance to God's will. And this is what has led Christians to believe that who Micah is talking about is Jesus Christ. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born into the line of David. He came as a shepherd. This is why we have the same hope that Judah received. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ, the new David that Micah prophesied about. Micah declared that the new David will stand. Jesus is not lying around doing nothing. Jesus is active and alert and working for those who trust him as their shepherd. Jesus is not sitting back counting down the days until he returns. No, Jesus is doing things in this world in and around and through his flock. Micah declared that the new David will feed his flock. Jesus knows the needs of his flock and there is no unmet needs with Jesus. Jesus will take care of his own. He will provide for his flock just what they need. If we call out to Jesus for help or provision, Jesus will answer. Micah declared that the new David will serve his flock in the strength of the Lord. The strength of the Lord is omnipotent strength. For those who trust in Christ, omnipotent divine strength is on your side. It is this strength that moves mountains. This is why our faith can rest secure, because we're not banking on human strength that fails, but on godly strength that never fails. Micah declared that the new David will guard his flock since he will be great to the ends of the earth. No matter where members of his flock go, they will be safe. Our security will not be threatened by anything in this world. All the powers in the cosmos, both visible and invisible, will bow their knee to King Jesus, since he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And finally, Micah declared that the new David will be our peace. Isaiah will declare that the Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. The Apostle Paul will say that a peace that goes beyond all understanding accompanies Jesus this is a peace that our world, our communities, our governments, our churches, our families, and our schools, and our workplaces all need, and it's all possible if Jesus operates as our shepherd. A recent viral video caught my attention last week. Perhaps you heard about what some are calling the country's deadliest outbreak of tornadoes in December that tore through six states last Friday and Saturday. More than three dozen tornadoes were reported by the National Weather Service last weekend. And as I was reading articles and looking at footage about this strategy, I came across a video of a man named Jordan Bays playing his piano in the midst of his destroyed home in Kentucky. After emerging from his basement in Bremen, Kentucky, where he had sheltered during the tornado, bays saw that the roof of his house had blown away doors had come off their hinges and shattered glass and insulation was scattered everywhere his yamaha piano however was still intact under an overcast sky the next morning mr bays sat alone in his living room and started playing a song that was stuck in his head for days his sister secretly caught the footage will you take a look at this video I don't know if you know the song that the man is playing. It's a bit hard to hear, but for some of you this morning, you may recognize it's an old Bill and Gloria Gaither song called There's Something About That Name. For those unfamiliar with the tune, let me read you the lyrics of that song. It goes, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after rain. Jesus, 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 Let all earth, heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms may pass away, but there's something about that name. Mr. Baze's kingdom was destroyed in that tornado. However, his faith and hope in Jesus was not. I felt there was something beautiful about hearing that tune played on an admittedly out of tune piano. While encircled by evidence of crisis, Tragedy and despair, when his means of expressing worship to God is tainted by those forces of chaos, the choice of this man, who had experienced admittedly much unfair loss, was hope in the person of Jesus anyway. There was something about Jesus that is keeping him going, and I found his testimony so moving the good news is that each of us can experience the hope of Jesus in our lives as well to keep us going, to help us not lose hope. If we invite Jesus to be a part of our lives, we can experience what it means for Jesus as the new David to be our shepherd. We will be provided for, taken care of, empowered, protected, and ultimately given an unearthly peace but it's up to us if we want to join Jesus' flock and experience all of this. God has promised that Jesus would be doing all of these things for us, and God is good at keeping his promises. It's interesting to me that the Old Testament prophecies surrounding the birth of Jesus were made when the people of God were in a moment of utter despair. When the people of God were at the end of the rope and utterly hopeless, Christmas was predicted. When it seemed like the situation cannot get any more dire, Christmas was forecasted. It's at this moment in their story that God inserts a pivotal plot development. God has not forgotten his people, God has not abandoned his people. God has promised a deliverer who will save his people. And the stain goes for our stories as well. Buts still exist, Christ is still our shepherd. And all of the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And the dark night wakes, the glory breaks, and Christmas comes once more.